Do-do-do-do-do-do. Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 122 of Drinks with Tony with my guest, Daniel Pine. He's the author of Water Memory. He's also a screenwriter, and he wrote one of my favorite Michael J. Fox films, Doc Hollywood. Yes, I play him with many questions about that on this episode. Do you like free writing classes? Well, I teach once a month at the Los Angeles Public Library. And since we're in the world of the pestilence, we're on Zoom. So our next workshop is on Zoom on February 10th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. Email duchene at gmail.com and I'll send you the Zoom link if you'd like to join us. Do you like paying for writing classes? Well, the new quarter at UCLA Extension publishes on February 1st, and I'm teaching two different screenwriting courses in the spring quarter. So go to uclaextension.edu for more information and search for Duchesne. Do you like hearing two dudes talk about writing straight to your ear holes? Hi, uh, I'm Dan O'Pine, and this is Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Daniel Pine. He's the author of the new novel, Water Memory. His previous books include 29 Palms and 50 Mice. He's also a screenwriter who wrote Doc Hollywood, The Manchurian Candidate, and his TV credits include Bosch and Miami Vice. He wrote and directed the 1998 film, Where's Marlo? Did I get that right? Please tell me I got that right. Yeah, yeah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Can I tell you what a fan of Doc Hollywood I am? Oh, yeah, please do. (laughs) I I love that movie so much. Um, I do, too. Yeah? I, I, you know, it was, I don't get to write, I never got to write that many comedies. Uh And um, it was such a, it was a great experience working with Michael Fox, working with Michael Caton Jones. It was just, it was really fun. It wasn't my original script. It was a, I did a, a rewrite, a big rewrite on it. Um, but I came into, it was one of those where you come into a dead project and I fixed it and they were shooting within eight months. So, wow. Or maybe even less. So it was really great. And I, I really like it. I have, I have great fondness for it. Yeah, I, I, I just, as a kid, I, you know, I just remember watching it and just like, there's just, I love Michael J. Fox so much. And, and I just love those movies he did in that, at that time. There was yeah. Love for Love or Money, Doc Hollywood. Um, I, there, there was a few in there where I was just, I don't know. I, I, it, it just got to my romantic side as well, I think. It's because. It's got, yeah, it's got, it, it, when, when we did it, when I came onto it, um, I wanted to do uh, my sort of an American version of Local Hero. Remember Local Hero? No, no. What's that? Uh, it's this Scottish film about an American who goes to Scotland to try to convince this guy in this little tiny town to sell his property so they can build a big oil rig offshore. And he sort of falls in love with the town. And it's very quaint and and gentle and really funny, um, but it's it's not joke, joke, joke. You know, it's very much a human comedy. And this had this had the potential to be joke, joke, joke. And I was never interested in that. And luckily 
neither was neither were either Michaels. So yeah, it was great. It's got that great sequence toward the end with with the Patsy Cline song where they're dancing on the um, he's he's dancing with uh, what's her name. Uh, Oh, I'm I, I know you didn't know you were getting a memory test today. You you were like two o'clock. <laughs> two o'clock. I have a. But he's dancing. They're dancing on this dance floor, sort of at, at the festival that's toward the climax of the film. And I'd written it in a certain way, and Michael, Kate, and Jones shot it just exactly right. And they're dancing, and then suddenly everyone goes away, and the Patsy Cline song, "Crazy," becomes the soundtrack. So it goes from being source to soundtrack. And it's just, it's amazing. And the lights are just right. It was, it was kind of frightening how good it was. Isn't it beautiful when you write something and then they, and then it becomes better? Yeah. You see the final cut? It's what I love about movies is, is I, you know, I write my movie on the page, but then when you add the actor and the director and the cinematographer and everything else, it's like magic happens. And with luck, it becomes better than, than anything you imagine. Yeah, I love those moments. I, I've, I've had them way less than you, I'm sure. <laughs> but, and then um, it's uh, getting on my, writing for Miami Vice. What, what was that like, like getting that, getting that job? By the look on your face, I could see it was the greatest thing to ever happen to you. <laughs> Well, it was, it was a long time ago. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> um, it was one of the, it was the second TV show that I did. It was the first, it was, and it was it was crazy. It was fun, but but kind of a blur, um, because I I got hired or I got brought in during the pilot. And I met with, Tony Yerkovich created it and I met with him and Michael Mann wasn't even part of it. Oh, and, wow. and then as I was writing my first episode, Michael Mann came on as the sort of director producer. And um, so for the first season, I wrote a bunch of scripts and then I came on about midway through the first season and then went to midway through the second season and left because I, I had another, thing to do I had a show that I had created that I could do uh, well, but it was it was really fun yeah and, and it's also at the time do you do you know it's going to be iconic or it's just just like let's just get through this we, we might we, make it through season one um Tony thought it would be um it had a lot of problems we got beat up a lot for um for it being all style and no substance I think people didn't know what to make of it because there was also this very strong cinematic element. And in those days, television just didn't do that. TV movies might, but television didn't. Um, and as we were doing it toward the end of season one, it started to become this cultural phenomenon. But for the first part of season one, we were flying below the radar. I mean, it's Friday night at 10, nobody watched TV then. and um, and. Michael was convinced it would be a thing. And he did a lot of, you know, a lot of actors who went on to have big careers started on Miami Vice. Bruce Willis um, was in yeah, that. And hits a scene. woman in that, in, isn't he, isn't he beating up a woman? He's a wife beater, yeah. He's a, he's a, an, a, a wife abuser. He's a drug dealer who's abusing, and that's how they get it. That's, <laughs> that's how they bust him. 
It's just like, I think actors today, I, I don't know, they'd be like, I, I don't think I can hit a woman in this show because I want a career. And then, but you look at Bruce Willis, and it's like, oh no, he hit, he hit a woman and he got a huge career. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was before Moonlighting. It was before right. all that stuff, yeah. yeah. And then he, yeah, they, and then they were trying to peg him as the kind of like, oh, I'm a cute romantic guy for a while, you know? Right, That's right. Fun. Oh my God, I buried the lead. I looked you up because I try not to do too much prep for when I do these interviews so we have more conversation, you know? Right. And then plus I'm lazy. But um, you you got to work under uh, Chuck Kinder when it was- Oh yeah, do you know him? I, I, so like years ago when he wrote The Honeymooners, is that the uh, name of the book? Uh, yeah. I, I, I wrote him a letter, a fan letter, because I really liked it. And he wrote me this like two page typed letter back. And it, it meant everything to me. And, oh, wow. and, I, and, it's, and it was like when I was just starting to write and I was like, wait a second, you know, this, this is like, I, I don't even know if I had an email address yet. I was like, writers will write back to you. And, the, and, and, they, and they, it's, it was so personal. Yeah, so, so I know who he is because I'm always fond of Chuck Kinder, yes. He was, he was my mentor in college. I was, I was studying economics, but I started taking creative writing courses and I stumbled on him and he was wearing overalls. You know, he, he didn't look anything like a professor. And he, I didn't even know how old he was. He must have been very young, but he was a Stegner fellow at the time. So he was teaching a workshop for undergraduates and I latched onto him and I liked him so much. I just kept taking classes from him. Um, and, and then lost track of him after I graduated and went on to do other things and, and kind of tried to stay in touch, but he disappeared too. And then the next thing I knew, Wonder Boy came out and I was reading about that. And it turned out Chuck was the, was the guy for Wonder Boy and that he had been Michael Chabon's um, mentor when he was back in Pennsylvania or University of Pittsburgh or something, he was, he went back East and settled there. And then, and then um, I'm also friends with Bob Ward, who's a novelist here in LA. And Bob knew Chuck from San Francisco when I was in school, they kind of hung out together and he told me all these wild stories. And basically Chuck spent 20 years trying to write one novel, one epic novel that's like, I forget which one it is, but it's like 500 pages. It's um, it, it, just like the guy in Wonder Boy. So he was great. He taught me a lot about writing. And it, so, uh, so you were going towards an economic degree or kind of towards that area. And is, was it Chuck who kind of steered you in a... Uh, no, it was, I was taking economics because my father is a, what was a, painter and a sculptor and not very successful and thought I needed a practical degree. So I agreed that I, I said, oh, I'll take economics, which he knew nothing about. But meanwhile, I was, I was taking these creative writing courses and I really wanted to write novels and short stories, but I wasn't very good at it or, or I, I was struggling with it. And when I graduated, um, on a lark, I w applied to film school and got in. Um, and then that took me in a different direction. But I've kind of circled back because I always intended 
to write books. And that's what I was studying with Chuck was writing short stories and fiction. And I think about him all the time now because when I'm writing, I think about things that he would say in class or that, that he would, or out of class, you know, just stuff to focus on, things to pay attention to. Um, so yeah, so no, he didn't convince me to do it, but he convinced me that it looked like an interesting profession. And it's, it's funny, um, you know, someone could be a successful sculptor, just not make a lot of money at it. You know, it's uh, the, the yeah, success. He was, for... my, my father supported us by doing commercial art. He did illustration and design and, and then went back to painting and sculpture, but he just never, you know, there, as you know, there's, there's a certain amount of doing art that you you do what you do and you hope that you intersect somewhere with the commercial marketplace and not everyone does i mean some famous big time writers never did till a long afterward um so you know he just never quite got his due but he was he was really talented he was very skilled um really great artist intimidatingly good mm -hmm. uh realistic artist so yeah what well, was um so so you, you did was your was your success quick when you after you did film school and then were you kind of out the gate after that no no, no i did film school it i kind of kicked around took me four years to finish film school and i i didn't even get my degree because i kept i'd stop out i'd have to work a little bit to um to support myself so i did a little bit of journalism i did copywriting, advertising, copywriting, freelance. Um, and then it took about two years out of film school for me to get my first foot in the door. And I was writing, you know, I was writing and still writing short stories, but writing scripts, writing pilots, writing spec episodes of Magnum PI and heart to heart, you know, trying to just trying to find your way. Um, so it took a while. It was not an overnight thing. And I'm sure that the people around me thought I was crazy. The people around you in, um, in film school or? In, in LA and in just around the people in film school, uh, that was a good, it was a, it was a good excuse to keep writing. And it was also a positive that, that was good to be surrounded. I'd never been around other writers before that, even at Stanford, um, they have a great writing program, but not really a great undergraduate writing program. And very few people go from, you know, are writers undergraduate and, and go on to have careers. It's just not an art school or, and it certainly wasn't then. So, um, you know, the expectations you become a doctor or a lawyer or go to be an MBA. Right, right, the, the hobby is writing, right? And then, the, right. And then this is the right. career. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's weird during COVID, you know, because it's just like, I just, I write and teach for a living and do this. And then I found like weird hobbies. Like I got into cryptocurrency and learning about the economy. Oh, and, no. it, and that's like, <laughs> but that's just, it's so funny because that's a hobby. That, 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 that's like something, that's like me tinkering in the garage on something that is really weird to me that I'll never make money on because right. I'm over here. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's uh yeah how we cope right how we cope in pandemic it is i mean at some point you have it, i hear it all the time i don't know if you hear it from other people you talk to but basically you have to want to do it for free writing or art and and i've heard it from many other artists where they say you know you do it because there's nothing else you can do in a way and and you're going to do it anyway so you might as well figure out how to make a living at it that's yeah that's the key um it's like you don't have a choice if you don't have a choice then you need then you need to do your writing or whatever creative pursuit it's almost if i'm not doing it i'm a bad person (laughs) it's just like (laughs) i'm not a good person if i'm not writing (laughs) yeah it's very it's really self-selecting because they're I'm sure there are people who are talented, but they get distracted by other things or they get pulled away from it and they don't do it. And that's part of it. You, you, if you don't write, you, you can't be a writer. Yeah. And there, you know, I'll have people come through my classes, especially like if, if I'm doing a screenwriting class and actors will come in and they'll be like, Oh, great. I'm going to take this class because I, cause screenwriting's easy. And, you know, and then after week 10, usually they're like, this is hard. I think I'm just going to act. And I was like, I've done my job. Because it's nothing you just want to get into lightly. You're either a writer or you're not. And just even like the craft of acting, you're either an actor or you're not. There's a, right. You know, right. There's a beauty to it. <laughs> um, oh, I was going to. And then you then. So then you circled back and you was your first novel, uh, 29 Palms. 29 Palms, which, yeah. which started as a short story and then turned into a short film script that I never made, that then turned into a film script that I never made. But for about 10 years, I, I very slowly wrote a pretty short novel. <laughs> In my spare time, I just started, I decided I can't get this made, so I'm just gonna write it and I'm gonna fiddle with it when I can. And it took a long time, it was, because I'd do it and then I'd, then I'd stop and then I'd forget that I'd even worked on it. And then when I got back to it, I'd have to reread what I'd done before so I knew where I was. Um, it, took a, it took longer than it should have, I think. Now that I'm sort of into it, part of me wishes I'd pushed myself harder earlier and gotten, into, gotten back to it. I have to say though, I don't know, um, I learned so much as a screenwriter that I'm a better prose writer because of that now. Um, because screenplays, no one really cares about your prose in a screenplay. They like it when they're well-written, but if the, if the script's working, they don't care. Um, it gives you the freedom to do almost whatever you want in the action, you know, to write what, however you want. And I think I learned a lot from that. I got to experiment a lot with language. It's a very, you know, it's a very dynamic, present tense enterprise. And you learn how to make things move and, and move readers in a really short period of time. Yeah, the, um, how, how it, it can't get too flowery in the action on the script. If you, if there, if there is, um, a lot of, there's a creative part to it. It better be amazing and not stop anyone who's reading through the screenplay. Is that yeah. kind of how yeah. it rolls? One of the one of the hardest things for me initially 
was writing longer because we learn in screenwriting, you learn to write so concisely and to express your idea in such a, a simple short way to try to evoke a, you know, a bigger picture for a director or for whoever with the fewest words you possibly can. And then you get to a novel and, and you, can, you have to write all that stuff because you don't have a set decorator. But you also have to delve a little bit deeper into what people are thinking because we learn also how to express things without ever getting inside someone's head. You know, you have to do it through their actions or through their relationships with other people. And that's been hard. That's been a, a, a fun challenge is to learn how to relearn how to do that and just kind of let it go. It's, it's probably, it's funny. Cause I, you know, editors are usually for novels, editors usually are like, yeah, maybe we can condense this. And probably your editors are like, can we go a little longer? Can you go oh, a little deeper here? <laughs> yeah. Occasionally, occasionally I've gotten notes on water memory. I got some notes of, you know, this, this, this could be shorter. This could be crisper. And the good, th the good news is because of that experience, I was able to say to them, no, I understand what you're saying because I understand it from a screenplay movie perspective, but no, I actually want this to slow down here. This is where I intend it to slow down. So for better or worse, it's a, it's an author choice. Not, it's not an accident. It's not like I just didn't know what I was doing. It's, it's helpful, I think, but you're right. I mean, in general, in, in books, they're always telling you, most friends I have who, who write books generally write a long first draft and then they're, all the editing is about removing things. And for me, even in water memory, a lot of it I added after I finished, I wound up adding things. It's gotta, it's gotta be interesting because when you're, when you're screenwriting or especially working on TV shows, you're getting notes constantly, right? The, especially on a TV show, yeah. And then, and then to switch over to an editor for like an, an editor, author, novelist environment, do those notes just, you're just like, wait, there's not more notes? Does it, yeah. does it feel weird? <laughs> it does. It feels weird. You also, because of the way notes come at you in Hollywood, you generally have to do them because they're making the movie or you're on a, you know, you're, it's the network, it's the buyer who's telling you. And what the first few times I got notes in, on a book, I, I kind of bristled and I thought, oh man, these are, I don't want to do these. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then what, when I talked it through, the editor was like, no, these are suggestions. <laughs> At the end of the day, you do what you want to do, but we're suggesting this. If it doesn't work for you, fine. And in, that never happens in Hollywood. But in Hollywood, it's, yeah. you know, this, you know, we have this note, this doesn't work. So address it one way or the other, the end. And that, I think that's the beauty of both worlds. Cause when, when you have your name on a novel, you're ultimately responsible top yeah. to bottom. There's yeah. a beauty to that. And there's also, it's also scary. It's kind of naked. I think, yeah. I don't know if you feel the same way. No, I think that's right. You, but, but, but after, you know, after my experience writing movies, having credits on movies, working with directors, it was really nice with 29 Palms to look at that first page and know that everyone was going to read my words, 
not, you know, not some director's interpretation of my words or some actor's uh, performance based on my words. That every word someone's going to read, and it, it that was that was great. The first time that was really great. Yeah. Did you were you able to um, go on like promotional tour with that book and read at bookstores and stuff? A little bit. I, I it was published with a with a small indie publisher up in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So I did a, a couple of book events. I don't really, I mean, I don't really like doing them, frankly. But really? Yeah, I feel like I wish, I wish that we don't live in that world, but the, the work should just stand alone. You know, you read it, you read, I read a book. I don't really necessarily think about the author as I'm reading the book. I'm just, do I enjoy this book? Am I compelled to keep going? What do I get out of it? You know, I, I get my own thing out of it. Um, but yeah, I had a couple, you know, Book Soup and Skyline and yeah. it was all right. It's, I, I like it as a fan because, you know, I like to, if I'm reading an author my, and, I, and, we're, and we're lucky enough that they're coming to our town and we can go listen to them read. And, and you know, if we've read the book, it's just like, oh, they read it in a different way. Oh, it's their take is different. And then I just like shaking their hand. They shouldn't even have readers read. It's just, it's just have an author show up, you know, pre-COVID and then after we get the vaccine and just be able to shake the hand and say, thank you in person. I think that yeah. maybe that's how it yeah. should go. Michael Connolly is really good at him. He loves doing him, I think. Yeah. And he's very good at it. And he connects with his fans and um, he's, he's really entertaining. Have you, oh my God, you just, um, have you ever seen James Elroy do an event? Mm -mm. I, he does, you know, I mean, he's, he's an LA guy, so he's around sometimes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, if he does an event and you're part of the event, just, you don't, he's going to take over the whole thing. Just relax and let him do what he does. Cause he's amazing at what he does, but the guy's a star. He walks in, he's a star from the minute he walks in. Yeah. He writes like that too, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, an, it's very confident. It is, yeah. The um, and uh, oh, I'm sorry, I, I I got all excited about promotion and <laughs> shaking hands. I want to do the shaking hands author tour, or the double kiss author tour. If you know my next book comes out or whatever, right. I won't have to read. I can just. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just say hi to people, and bring the community together. Get out. Well, it's fun doing something like this because because it's talking about writing. It's talking about you know it's it's fun to I enjoy talking about the philosophy of writing and the and the the consequence and you know what what it means the cultural significance of it. All those things I think are good and important and it's worth doing. It's and it's what I listen to and it's what I read and it's what I want to. I'm always trying to um, learn, you know, learn the learn the thought processes of other authors. Even when I was yeah. young, before I was an author, it was just like, what's going through their mind? How does this happen? And then I thought it was grandiose, and people, were, I get this idea, and it just plunges along, and it's just like nothing's grandiose. It's actually just a lot of crap, and yeah. then we just flash <laughs> it, and it is just such a revelation. It's just like. Oh, everyone feels like they're not doing a good job, and then it just kind of comes out. Yeah, it's pushing through that feeling, right? 
that feeling that, oh, this is terrible. I should just stop. There's something, you know, I'll go watch TV or there's something else that I could spend my time doing. I'll go do Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> my, my new addiction, which is just terrible. Yeah. I, it's, yeah, I'm spending way too much time trying to understand something that doesn't mean anything to me and my, you know. What a concept, though, virtual currency. Well, that's what's so intriguing about it. And that's and it's kind of a, um, it's a little bit of a deviant hacker vibe. And so yeah. for me, there's a story to that. And I think that's why I kind of went, ah, that's an interesting story. I want to I want to see what that weird story is that I have absolutely no skin in the game on. I don't care anything about it if it lives or if it dies, but it's a fun story instead of being on the writer or teaching side of things where I care too much, you know? Right, right. No, I'm kind of fascinated by it and how it sustains itself. I mean, the little bit that I remember about economics, it makes sense. It's just, uh, it's like the next level of economic theory because it's a thing that really has no value at all. It doesn't even represent an underlying value. And yet, if everyone agrees, it, it works. And it blows my mind because then, it, then this thought came to me. I have a piece of paper that says 100 on it and a piece of paper that says one on it. And we all agree that the 100 will get me a nice meal in a restaurant and the one will get me a pack of gum. Right. And then, and then that kind of blows my mind even further down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's... Uh, it, economics is a religion. I was always trying to get it turned into religious studies so that I could do it as a, I could, I could get, I could use it or a foreign language. I tried to have it declared a foreign language. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a religion. It's, and, and, and I have to tell you everything, not everything, but a lot of what I learned in college is no longer true, no longer believed to be true. So all those theories, all those, things that they thought they knew have been have been debunked and, it, and is that because of um because we're dealing with less cash these days no it has to do with um classical economics never really dealt with irrationality of the consumer so classical economics assumes the rational consumer with perfect information. So you know it, you know what you need to know in order to make a rational decision and then everything works off of that. But a bunch of people have won Nobel prizes in the last 20 years studying irrationality and irrational behavior and um, basically uncertainty. You know, the fact that you may think that People do things that are against their best interests. All those theories um, have come into the fore. And now they, and, and it was difficult because economics was trying to get to be math based. So they were building all these statistical models, but without factoring in irrationality, all their models were way off because people don't behave that way. So there's a whole school now, if, if I did it again, there's a whole school of behavioral economics that I think I'd be more interested in. And it's almost like, um, it's almost like uh, there's an emotional aspect to it a lot more than just Correct. the- Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. It, it's, uh, and, and it's interesting because we have the, uh, what do you call it, the, you know, the word of mouth, the advertising, the what we think we need, the what we think we want. And then, yeah, it's in the, probably the original theories. It's like, no, oh, of course they want food, clothes, shelter. We'll do it this way. Is that, is that, is that close to it or? Yeah. Yeah. And they, and then they would expand that out, but you know, that you need all these things and they create these huge statistical models in these, these predictive grids that were, but they were all still based on the idea that everyone was rational and, and made decisions, rational decisions that benefit themselves. And we just don't. And it's kind of cool. It's interesting. Um, I like how you said religion because there is, there is an amount of faith, I guess, in economy. Is that a good way to put it? With, with, is that why oh, yeah. you were thinking religion or? Yeah. Religious studies. Well, at the time I was doing, I was doing creative writing. I was doing economics. I was taking a lot of other wild courses, but I also did a little bit of religious studies and studied uh, some of the European, uh, the old Christian thinkers, but also Buddhism and Taoism and all that stuff. And it, it occurred to me as I was, you know, trying to study everything together they all sort of melded into this stew of oh it's all religion it's all just about belief like bitcoin if you if you believe it it'll work for you but the minute people stop believing it watch out yeah <laughs> yeah and it's and it it's interesting how i it kind of it kind of all comes back to well in my head correct me if i'm wrong it comes back to story and so, right. so even, um, and, and, and like when we're thinking about uh, cryptocurrency, people are like believing in the future of it. So if we're coming up with a script and someone buys a script, they're actually believing in the future that that's, this script can bring in these actors and this director, which can turn, can bring in money to keep the, uh, to keep the rent paid. But it, right. it's, all, it's all kind of an act of faith in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah, maybe everything is. Writing a script is an act of faith. Writing a book is an act of faith. You're, not, hoping, <laughs> you're hoping that when you're done, someone will read it. Not only an act of faith, absolute delusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, it's, uh, yeah. There's almost a point where, I mean, I gotta do this for me. I have to feel grandiose about what I'm doing. I'm, I'm accepting the Man Booker Prize. I'm accepting the Golden Globe, you know, as I'm writing. And then once it gets out there, I know that I might get a couple tepid reviews. But, you know, it's, it, there's that, that if you're not in the game, then that chance isn't there. But if you're in the game, there's a chance. Right, right. Yeah, I think everyone does that. You play the what if. You create stories inside of stories. and Yeah. What if people do realize we're geniuses? Yeah. Where, where are you teaching? Where do you teach? I, I teach at UCLA Extension. Oh, I was teaching at UCLA um, in the grad school for a long time. Oh, yeah? In the film school. Yeah. Till, till two years ago. Oh, very cool. One, just one quarter. So you knew a, a couple of my students were, my ex-students were teaching there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's fun. 
That's a good program, that professional program, that extension program. It's, it's fantastic. I just realized I've been there six years. Wow. And, um, and it kind of flew by. And the beauty of just um, the beauty of uh, teaching it. It's just, I, I just didn't realize how much it feeds my soul. Yeah. How much, how much I need it. And I even do a free workshop at the library every month. Now that we're in COVID, it's on Zoom. It's just a creative writing workshop. And everyone's just like, thank you so much for volunteering. I'm like, I, I, you have no idea. This is more for me than anyone else. This feeds me. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because you, you're exposed to all these fresh ideas and these, these sort of untainted, uncynical, you know, new writers approaching things in ways you'd never thought of. And I always felt every year I got a gut check on how much I didn't know. Because you get quite you get questions and you go, wait a minute, I don't know the answer to that. Or or oh, I don't know how to solve that. You know, when you're trying to help someone with a structural problem. It's very humbling, but I miss it. It's the and that's the beautiful part of it is I, I think there are teachers out there who uh, want to be right. I and I've I've even kind of been around some of those teachers where they don't want to give, they don't want to show their hand that, oh no, this is I'm wrong a lot of the time. How are you doing this? You're doing it way better than me. Yeah. You know, there's that exchange with the student where it just, it's, it's a beautiful exchange. Yeah, yeah, I really, I like it. And, and, um, and you also, so, and you directed um, Where's Marlowe? Was that I your- I did direct, I did direct. Um, I didn't really set out to be a director. I didn't feel like I had the personality for it. Um, so I delayed for a long time, but my friend John Mankwitz and I came up with a, this wild TV pilot idea that was way, you know, way before The Office was, was a series about a, pri- a private detective show, like a, what would be a private detective show, deconstructed because the private eye is really kind of down and out and not very successful. And the show or the, what we're seeing is actually the raw footage of a documentary that two kids from NYU are shooting for their first project out after they got out of school. And they're making this movie about being a private detective in Los Angeles about this guy. So we wrote it intending to shoot every scene as a master, like a document, like a real documentary. So you'd set it up and you realize. So, so we, by chance we sold it to ABC. And when they asked who could direct it, we couldn't think of anybody. And I said, I think I can't, I think I know what to do here. And they let me do it. So, so we shot it and I learned a lot and it was wacky. Uh, Miguel Ferrar was the detective, and most deaf was one of the one of the two filmmakers before he was even most deaf. Um, and then it didn't. It almost got on the air, but then it didn't get on the air. And then ABC let go of it. And then Paramount came back to us and said, "If you can think of another thirty minutes, we'll release it." as a movie, as a little independent movie. So we did. 
So we, we went back two years later and, and shot new material and added to it and expanded it out. And it's this, I got to make the most experimental indie movie ever inside the studio system. At one point I had an entire crew, a regular Paramount film crew sitting in deck chairs, watching us shoot with a Super 8 camera because the characters were shooting the, the, the movie um, and their good camera went down. It was really fun. It turned out great. Nobody saw it, but I'm, it was one of the best things I ever did. Uh, that's, and I love, the, uh, I love the juxtaposition of an indie film in a studio situation. What a fun way to get it to there with the possibility of a pilot and then. Oh, I know. It was, it was just, it was like the weirdest serendipity. And we sold it. We went in to pitch a different idea and bombed. And the, the development guy said, what else do you have? And we'd kind of been forbidden by the studio to pitch this idea, but we jumped on it. We said, well, we have this other idea about these two documentary filmmakers who are making a documentary about a private eye. And then halfway through, they have to be his partners. So they become part of their own documentary. And the guy said, stop, you can do it, go. Wow. Do you remember what your first pitch was that you like, that you tormented on to try to get it just right? Uh, you know, it was pretty much Mad Men, long before Mad Men. It was that idea. It was it was advertising, a period thing about advertising. Wow, <laughs> that's cool. The, um, it's weird. It's, it, it blows my mind because they, I, you know, I kind of hear. I've heard that story before, where it's just like, well, what else do you have? And then it's just like, off the top of your head, you come up with something. Yeah. But there's, but there's such a beautiful. It's almost like maybe it's because you're relaxed or you're just kind of connected to you're just like oh yeah this is this interests me and there maybe maybe it's an authentic thing that just comes out where there's a where there's a moment of authenticity that's kind of sexy tell me yeah. if i'm completely wrong there no that's right it's it's also a little bit of everyone it, it's that it's that famous quote nobody knows anything so you, you go in with everybody telling you what the network wants or the studio. So you go in thinking you have what they want and they actually don't know what they want. So they start hearing it and they're drifting because they probably had it pitched to them in that morning or something else. And what they really want to hear is something they haven't heard all week. Huh. And a lot of, you know, a lot of good ideas get sold that way. A lot of bad ones I think do too. Yeah. where people walk in and they do the same thing and they throw it out and they say go and then it turns out to be horrible yeah <laughs> but yeah there's something in in the casual nature of it i don't know i mean i i i've given up trying to predict what can sell and what can't i know i just don't know i've never known and it's interesting those people on the other side of the table i don't know how they can hear pitches all day I don't either. I, I don't I, either. Yeah, I would. I would be like, can you? Can we make sure there's no guns on this floor because I might blow my brains out <laughs> during lunch. <laughs> yeah, imagine you're hearing and you're doing it all day, every day. Really, that's yeah. your job. And there's and there's those eager eyes. I I hate the eager eyes where people are just like, 
oh my God, you can give this to me. I can't wait to take this from you. So if you see that all day long, it's got to mess with your head a little bit. Where yeah. Everyone wants something from you so bad because their lives oh, can yeah. be changed if you say yes. Yeah. That's got to be just, that's got to screw with the mind. <laughs> that much want that much and then and then to, and then to walk around town expecting other people to think that the, you know and then it's just like oh wait i gotta go back to a normal person not everyone wants a piece of me when i when i'm in the fruit section of a grocery store <laughs> oh what a business it's weird it's also weird yeah continues to baffle me and I, i've only been near it a little bit you know not so much but uh yeah i hope you tell your students that too because it is not it it's weird and when they have weird experiences that's normal it's it's not an it's it's not for the faint of heart for sure well, well my when i one of my uh, lectures is about writing your truth no matter what even if you're writing for something that's big if you're on a adam sandler project write something that's from your core truth so you don't feel like you're totally selling your soul even though even if keep it in in their parameters um yeah i just if we can always find a way to find our own truth even if it's even if it's something that is not our is not our jam and, uh, yeah that's funny that on that was something i learned on doc hollywood actually from michael fox was when i was hired i was hired to rewrite it for him. It was the first time I'd ever been, you know, they brought me on, he, he, had, he had committed to, he'd done something, had he done the hard way then? Maybe done the hard way. Anyway, I got brought in to do the rewrite for him. So I, I talked to him and I said, um, I'm supposed, what, what do you want? And he said, don't write it for me. Give me a character to play. Don't worry about, don't try to write to my voice. Don't do anything like that. And then we talked a little bit about comedy and his, his attitude towards comedy was, it just has to be consistent. You know, I'm, I'm a funny actor. I can make moments, but as long as the tone stays consistent and you stay with the characters, you'll find it. If you try to write jokes, you're writing skits and it's, and it's not a movie, it's not a story and it, and it won't grab people, it won't move them. And I, I've thought about that a lot because, you know, you wanna write a truth that you believe in. Otherwise you're just chasing, you might as well do a different job. You know, yeah. As well. And I think even if, you know, people, if they're reading something, they won't know that how much truth is in there or what, what went in but they'll know there's that little something that's just a little different that kind of yeah. sticks out. Yeah, that's you. That you want to put yourself in in the piece, some part of you in it, because that's what makes it different. And how self-aware and amazing Michael Fox sounds. He was great. Yeah. Yeah. He was. He was really. That was right when he got diagnosed with Parkinson's too. I think it was uh -oh. that year right afterward. But he was for. For someone who was, who had had such a big, long career at such a young age, he was remarkably level and, and easy to work with. Which is rare. I, w I wonder, you know, you, you wonder if that's genetics or who he's hanging out with, if he has good friends, where his solid values come from, because those values Canada. have to come 
Canadian. Oh, is he, Can- is he Canadian? Oh, that's all you had to say. <laughs> it's true. What what is it about Canada? Is it is it there? Is it so cold up there that they have to think about how they present themselves and uh, and their truth? There's a there's a humility. There's a modesty in the humility. So a Canadian actor is like is like a really colorful normal person here. They're not like an American actor. They're they they're just they're a little more entertaining. And maybe it's the French influence too. Maybe they're just like. Don't put me in so much. Just maybe. Let's just let uh, I I picture and whenever I think of French, I think of someone smoking a cigarette, you know. Let us just let us just make it a veneer and we will let the we will let the viewer decide what the character does. They were the loyalists. We were the rebels. Yeah. We were, we were tearing it all down and they were trying to hold the traditions. Yeah. I love Canadians. Yeah. There, there, there's a there's a record label called Secretly Canadian, which just cracks me up. I don't know. I don't even remember who's on the record label. I just know the record labels out there, and I just love that name so much. It's my it, it it's why we have the Michael J. Foxes in the world. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It was great. Daniel Pine on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, Water Memory. Hey, thanks for listening. Stay tuned next week while my guest is Todd Goldberg. We'll discuss his latest novel, The Low Desert. Keep on reading. Keep on writing. I'll see you next Wednesday.